Enough of that. Let's get on with things that truly are important. Uh, we came down to Romans 5. I got kidded a little bit about whether I'd make it through more than three verses today. week before last, it was six. It was double that. Let's not push it too much. And I made it through actually even more than a chapter yesterday to get us down to five. But uh, Romans began by Paul berating all mankind for getting away from the God of creation and not looking at what he has done and recognizing him for what he is. And then he jumped all over the Jews for being self-righteous and thinking that they were more important than anybody and encouraged the Gentiles that they too have uh, as much chance uh, as a born Israelite. So he makes it very clear then that the Jews had not used the advantage that they had having the Word of God and knowledge of God and were in really worse shape than the Gentiles who had not known God and then basically rejected Him by the way that they believed and lived. So then last week we dwelt quite a bit on Abraham and Sarah and how they believed God. When God would tell them something, they simply believed it. And that is a key to us coming to salvation, is believing what God says. He's going to talk about that some more today. But God had made promises promises to Abraham, and they didn't stagger. They, they laughed a little initially, but they believed him and knew that it would happen, and then waited until it did happen. Just as God has promised us certain things that we've been over many, many times in the prophecies that are due to happen soon, but they haven't happened yet. And here we are, because we believe those things will happen. Uh, Habakkuk got a little frustrated and said, well, they're not happening as fast as I want. How long, O Lord? And uh, then God told him some things, and he finally tucked his tail between his legs and says, I think I'll go sit on my watch and wait and let God do it. Uh, he still believed it. He says, I know in the long run he's still going to make my uh, feet as deer feet or whatever. He mentioned several things that God promises us there that he will renew and restore, and these things will happen. But then he says, I'll do it when I'm good and ready, just like he did with Abraham and Sarah. But he did give them a sign there. He did say at one point, this will happen, I believe, within the next year. He told them, uh, you know, you've been waiting and waiting and waiting. All right, it's almost time. And I think that's what he's done with some of the signs and the prophecies. He said, all right, it's almost time. You better get ready. You better be ready. And uh, if you read this, don't dilly-dally and pick flowers. Run. Get yourself in shape for what is coming. So Abraham and Sarah had to do that. And they believed the promise that whatever God had said he would do, he would do. And he mentions that in verse 21 of chapter 4. And then the last verse of that chapter 4, he says, Speaking of Christ, who was delivered for our offenses, and was raised again for our justification. So there were two things that happened there. We are not justified by his death. We are justified by his life. 
I mean, if he had not been resurrected, we would still have no hope of salvation, right? If he wasn't resurrected being the Son of God, neither would we be. (laughs) So his death was to pay for our sins, that they might be forgiven in his blood, uh, but raised for our justification. And then it goes into chapter 5, where he says, Therefore, being justified by faith. Now, justified is kind of a spiritual, biblical-sounding word. I don't know that we fully grasp some of those terms. But the word simply means approved. Therefore, being approved by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Emmanuel. Now see, there were some barriers between us and God. He does not hear sinners. He cannot abide sin. Now he puts up with it to a certain degree for a time. He's put up with Satan's sin and rebellion for a long time now, at least in our terms. But he will take care of it quite shortly now by binding him a thousand years so that he cannot influence anyone. Now, he has put up with our sins for going on 6,000 years now as mankind. Uh, That's a short time to him, but a long time to us. So he's put up with it because he has a plan to get rid of everybody's sins. So he's starting with a few who he gives the truth to, and if they believe it and follow it, then he says they will be the first fruits, the ones that he uses to help spread the message to the rest of mankind. So he has a plan, and we are among the first to be approved by the blood first and then the resurrection of Christ. And he says this Approval comes through faith. Faith is trust and belief, is what it is. There again, it's a religious-sounding word, and it certainly is a good word, but in modern terms, we would say belief or trust. And through that, we have peace. Well, how do we have peace? Because when there is war, or when there is not peace, it's because there are undealt with problems. Whether it's between people, husband, wife, whatever, business associates, there are unresolved problems there, and you have two sides or more of the same story. And people don't agree, and therefore they butt heads and don't get along. We've all seen that, and we're experiencing that. Now, when we sinned, In the past, we butted heads with God, and there was not peace. And that's why he says there is a breach or a divide between us and God. And Christ describes that in the New Testament when he says those who come up as candidates for the third resurrection, there's a great gulf between them and God. A breach, a divide, a draw, something that, a canyon, if you will, between them and God, and it can't be crossed at that point. It's too late. 
So the rich man's mouth was dry because he was terrified, knowing that he was about to die in the lake of fire. Too late. Can't fix it. Now, he speaks in Isaiah 58 of a people who will repent and turn to God, keep his Sabbath, take their foot off of it and his other commands, be willing to share what he has given them, and will be called upon to share with those he gathers pretty soon. Everything that we have, everything that we are, will be required of us to share with those who come together for his purposes. So, he says, blessed are the healers of the breach. Now, that breach can be between us individually and God because of sin, because sin cuts us off, as Isaiah explains, from God. And it was sin, Laodiceanism, and taking God for granted, that caused a breach between God and the church. So he spit us all out. And for the most part, that breach of Laodiceanism, self-righteousness, is not being fixed in the church today. And indeed, for most, it will not be fixed until the tribulation. He is going to call 10% who have turned to him, have turned from sin and passivity, back to zeal and back to obedience, because that will heal the breach between those and God. The breach will remain with 90% of the church who do not see a need to repent and change. They will go into the tribulation, and he says 30-40% of them will repent then. But then they will also physically die. But their repentance just before they die will heal that eternal breach so that they can be a part of the first fruits. But they will not be protected. Only that group, which will become Philadelphia, a melding of the few names from Sardis and those of Laodicea who repent, will become or compromise Philadelphia who is protected. The Philadelphia era does not exist yet. Doesn't exist anywhere. 98.999% of the church think they're it, but it doesn't exist yet because it has not come together and been protected and have the things done for it that God says will be done for it. Now, the seeds have been planted, perhaps, and God knows where they are, of those who are repenting and who are changing and are trying to find their zeal for God. You and I cannot know where they are. But he says he will stir them to come. He stirred Abraham and Sarah by giving them promises. And he is stirring us by giving us promises and giving us a chance to be healers of the breach between ourselves and God, the church and God, and ultimately mankind and God. By believing in the process of salvation, and that it does apply to us now. We're not supposed to be sitting here wondering or wishing. We're supposed to be sitting here believing in faith that these things will happen. We're about to see that. 
Therefore, being approved by belief, trust, faith in God, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel. It creates peace between us once our sin and the penalty of that sin is removed, and we come to believe God's promises, then our minds are together with God's mind. And therefore, then, there is peace. And we need to find the peace of God. Feeling uh, confident that He will do what He has said He would do. You see, we lose confidence when we base our salvation on ourselves or our works because we know that we fall short and therefore we don't have confidence. Now, Paul came to have a level of confidence where he said, I know I've passed the test, I've run the race, I'm going to be in the kingdom of God. I don't think that came easily to him. But over time, he came to have that kind of confidence, which is where we should be headed. Because it, our salvation does not depend on us. I don't think where it is right now, but there's a verse that says that he works his salvation in us. It is he who causes salvation to come. Abraham and Sarah believed they'd have a baby but they were utterly incapable of causing that to happen. Utterly. It had to come completely and totally from God. Or at least a restoral of their bodies which required that. And our salvation depends totally on God. It is not something we can earn. Paul's been explaining that. You can't earn it. It is a gift of God to those whom he has favor and mercy and grace toward because of their attitudes and their belief in him. And therefore, he's willing to give them what he really wants to give us. It is his good pleasure to give us his kingdom. He's not trying to catch us and stop us. He's, it's his good pleasure to do it. So we have to look to Christ as having forgiven our sins and also toward approving us to be given a gift. Not by our works, but by His mercy. By whom? Christ Himself. Also, we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. <coughs> Now, he's telling us there what our attitude and our mindset ought to be. He says an awful lot in verse 2. Here's something we need to pay attention to very, very carefully. Verse 2. Through Christ, by whom also we have access by faith. It's clear in Scripture that God gives mercy and grace to those whom he will. Didn't we read last week that that man is blessed to whom the eternal will not impute sin? Verse 8 of chapter 4. You might have made a mistake 
But your life is going in the direction he wants it to go, and he says, I'm going to overlook that. I won't impute that. That isn't there for everybody. You're truly blessed if you're one of those to whom he doesn't impute sin. I don't know how many of those there are. I hope to become one of them. So that when I do make a mistake, I know God's on my side. He's there to forgive me. Just like you as a parent. You're not there to say, Aha, you little brat, I caught you in the cookie jar. I'm going to kill you. No. He wa- we want our children to be loving and agreeable and cooperative and respectful and loving, don't we? And we want them to come to us for good gifts. And instead of climbing on the cabinet and getting in the cookie jar, we much prefer it if they will be honest and open and say, Daddy or Mommy, may I please have a cookie? And if it's not five minutes before dinner time, you know, everything else considered, I'm happy to give them something that they desire. I want them to be happy. Now, that's God's attitude to us. He wants us to be believing and happy and loving. We have access to Him through that kind of belief into this grace wherein we stand. Now, Paul is saying, we have, as repentant, partially converted, baptized Christians, the grace, the good favor, the unmerited pardon of God. Now, there are a lot of people out here in the world who are not living under the grace, the good favor of God. In fact, he's about to destroy uh, are allowed to be destroyed well over 90% of the population of the earth. Because there is such a breach between man and God as there was in Noah's day. And he had to just flat wipe them out. And then he'll bring them up in the second resurrection and teach them the truth under better conditions without Satan around. So he has, you know, it sounds harsh. I'm just going to drown you all. That sounds pretty bad. But his mind and attitude wasn't that. His mind and attitude was, you have gotten so far from my way of living, you're so violent and so immoral and so wretched that that has to go away. Then I'm going to resurrect you and I'm going to teach you a better way to live that will bring you peace and happiness and security without wondering if you're about to be killed by your neighbors. So, God had their good, uh, their, the best for them in mind all along, just like He will for these here at the end time that are about to die. He doesn't hate them. He loves them, but He hates the sin and the wretchedness that we have produced and the pollution and everything that makes this world so bad that man cannot much longer live on it. Now, I went out this morning and sat in the sunshine and the shade and looking at the grass and the trees. And the world didn't look too bad. Sitting in my backyard with a fence and the trees hanging up in the air. 
Didn't look too bad. I couldn't taste the air that I was breathing. So for that moment in time, for a bit, it seemed peaceful and lovely, the birds flying around. But that's not the way the world is. Uh, the world is still fairly decent in spite of us. In spite of us. But God has given us grace that we stand in. We're not laying down. We're not sitting. He pictured it as a standing. That, that is our standing with God, is forgiveness and mercy. You don't need to pack around a lot of guilt and worry and frustration. That needs to go away, and you have peace with God because of Christ's sacrifice and resurrection. Now, I spent some time on that last week, and I don't think it can be emphasized too much, that we do not carry our sins around. We are contrary to God if we carry our sins on our back. Do we grasp that? Why do we indulge in it then? It is against Christ's sacrifice and His resurrection for us to carry our sins around on our back or to make somebody else pack theirs because of our attitude toward them thinking, oh, you were a sinner. You still are a sinner. No, we're under grace. We stand in the unmerited pardon of God, just not in the eyes of ourselves, our friends, our neighbors, our relatives, and the world in general. We are only concerned with God's attitude toward us, right? And if we perform in such a way that He has kindness and mercy toward us, then that's all that counts. And we must also have kindness and mercy toward ourselves and toward our neighbors because we should love them as much as we love ourselves. How much do you want your sin gone compared to how much you want your neighbor's sin gone? There's a litmus test for you. Are you as willing to see your neighbors forgiven as you are yourself? Put it a different way. How much do you pray about your sins as compared to your neighbor's sins? We pray more for ourselves, do we not, than we do for anybody else. I think that's a general truism. We stand in that, and we should be rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. So, we are not belabored by our past. We are standing in the hope of glory. See, that's a focus forward, isn't it? Am I forward? The hope of glory. Guilt about the past is completely in the way of the hope of glory. Because you're burdened by that, and it affects your attitude toward the future. Now, does that mean that we should say, well, I'm forgiven, I'm fine? No, it's just that we don't carry that guilt and that burden of the past. 
but we stand in the hope of the glory of God. That is to be our mental attitude and approach. Now, that is a positive approach, isn't it? Standing in the hope of the glory of God is a positive outlook on life and the future. It doesn't say, oh, I just hope God can forgive me. I am so wretched. Oh, I'm awful. I'm blah, blah, blah. And feel sorry for ourselves and sit in the corner and eat worms and die. No, negativity is not a godly attitude. Negativity, negativity is a satanic attitude. When you are in a negative attitude, you are playing up to Satan and playing with Satan. Because that is Satan. Accusation and negativity is satanic. We are to come to have the mind of Christ and to be positive in our thinking. Standing in the hope of the glory of God is positive. Not negative. Some of us tend to be glass half full, some of us glass half empty in our personality. Well, we need to alter our personality. That's what conversion and change is all about. I don't care what was done to you or what you did to anybody 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. It doesn't matter anymore. It's washed away in the blood of Christ. You have to step out of the past and into the future. People who have had a bunch of miscarriages feel it's their fault, maybe. And they can't get past it. People that have been abused as boys or girls by Catholic priests or somebody, aunts, uncles, fathers, whoever. They tend to live back there. They can't seem to disassociate themselves from the horror and the trauma that occurred early in their life and move forward. Now, yes, those are very emotional issues that affect human beings very deeply. But you have to get past them and move forward not worrying about the past. Now, once we are in the kingdom of God, what does he say? He says, we will not look back on this life at all. There will be nothing here that even begins to compare at its best with what is there. So, there will be no desire to get together and talk about the bad old days. Or the good old days, however you want to look at it. Now, we do it some here, don't we? The good old days of worldwide, and then the bad old days of worldwide, and so on. No, he says, once you're there, you'll never want to come back here. So, once we reach conversion, isn't that the beginning of the kingdom of God in our hearts and minds? The progresses until we're actually changed. So, therefore, that which is in the past needs to be forgotten because we have a new life in Christ and the old man dies in the water and is crucified with Christ. In other words, 
in God's reckoning and in His mind, you no longer have a past. Do we grasp that? It's no longer there. Except in your mind. That's the only place it exists. Or in your mama's mind, maybe too, but whatever. But as far as what affects you, it's what's in your mind that counts. Not your neighbor, not your mother, or whoever. Because this is between you and God, and you and God only. So the past is washed away. Are we to have clean, washed minds, washed in the water of the Word? So whatever traumas, whatever abuses, whatever failures, whatever sins, are to be washed away and forgotten. Gone. Why do you try to resurrect that which is gone? You're wasting time. You're wasting energy. You're wasting emotion that could be used in a positive way Worrying about the past. <clears throat> you can't do anything about it yourself, can you? Whatever happened, happened. It just did. So get over it. That's what Christ says. Get over it. Move past it. Don't bring it up anymore. In your own mind. How does it encourage us to go back and think of the sins of the past, or the abuses of the past, somebody else's sins against us. Doesn't do us any good, just frustrates and discourages us, just keeps us from having better relationships with our children and our mates, and our brothers in Christ, because those things can cause us to lose closeness and love. And we're here to be joined together in the love of Christ. So, sin of the past gets in the way of that. That's why forgiveness among ourselves is so important. What you did to me last week or last year, today means nothing. What I did to you last week or a year ago, today means nothing. Because hopefully we've had it covered under the blood of Christ. So it is no longer an issue. Why do we carry grudges of things that happened a year or two or five or ten ago? Because we're not converted enough. That's why. Because we've not accepted and believed Christ enough is why. Because we don't put it under His blood, we carry it around in our head. And what's in our head is different than Christ's blood being shed for us and different than His life that was resurrected for us. For all of us. For us and our neighbors. For us and our brothers and sisters. And therefore, if we hold something over somebody's head, we are in direct opposition to God who has forgiven it. Why do we need to bring up our old sins to God? Don't we have enough today? Isn't the evil of today sufficient enough to repent of without having to go over it over and over and over again? You know why you go it over and over and over again? It's because you don't believe it's gone. 
you don't believe it's gone. And therefore, you keep bringing it up. Learn the lesson. Don't go back there, whatever it was. Don't go back to it. But forget about it. Verse 2 says an awful lot about our attitude. I know I'm spending some time on it, but let's get it. Let's not just read over it. We stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's our focus. That's our attitude. So we don't let the past get in the way of that. Whatever it holds. You just move forward. Has it affected you? Yes, it has. But can we not grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and come to have an attitude that everything is now okay? That we don't have to be traumatized. Husbands and wives, when they get in a fight, probably every couple, has some things in the past that they didn't like. And in the heat of an argument or a battle, they get away from the issue at hand of what's here right now. They'll go back 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, yeah, but you... Because they're in a negative mood and they want to hurt each other. So they start bringing up whatever they can bring up to hurt the other person so they can feel a little better. But you don't feel better anyway, do you? And later you think, oh man, why did I bring that up? All I did was ruin tonight and tomorrow night. (laughs) You know, that's about it. So we hate ourselves for that. All right then, quit it. Aren't we supposed to be transformed? Changed? Converted? Changed means... You're not what you were anymore. You're different. Now, you look forward in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, verse 3, but we glory in tribulation also, knowing that tribulation works patience, patience, character, better translated, and character... uh, Again, and character produces hope. And hope makes not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given to us. He goes on and says what I've already been trying to expound. We're living in the hope of the glory of God, and we know that everything that we experience on this earth is here that we might better prepare for the kingdom of God. So if we have tribulations, trials, tests, problems, they're there to help us build character, to help us change, so that by overcoming, we might be in the better graces of God than we already are. And he says that he brings all these things on us to try us and to help us to come to have the right attitudes. So we joy 
in our tribulations, trials, and troubles. Now, that doesn't make a bit of sense on a natural human level, does it? I mean, if you're just out here living in the world, and you lose your job, and you get in a car wreck, and your kids are on drugs, and all these things happen in your life and in your family, there's not a bit of joy in that anywhere. Can't find it. Not there. Now, contrast your life and mine. We have a goal and a purpose to become a part of the kingdom of God and the bride of Christ. And we know that what we were when we were called was not anywhere near what he wants as a bride. And we ought to have enough sense to realize that we still are not 100% what he's after. We still fall very short of being like He is. And in fact, we will never come up to scratch to being what we need to be to be the bride of Christ until the actual transformation in a moment in the twinkling of an eye when we're transformed into spirit. Then and only then will we be 100% qualified to be His bride. Meantime, we're somewhere down here 20, 30, 80%, whatever it may be with us. We're still a long way from being what we need to be, and that's why it tells all the churches at the end, overcome. Now, what makes us overcome? Good times? When everything's happy, happy? Do you do your best overcoming when everything's going well? No, Scripture shows us that when everything's going good is when we tend to forget God and go whistling along our merry way. It's when things become difficult that we turn to God. So, He has planned difficulties into our lives as Christians. He's planned them. He allows them. You know, He could stop every bad thing that could happen to you. I can think back in my life, and I'm sure you can in yours, from before conversion and through conversion up till now. I can see places where I saw God intervene in things in my life where I would not be here today. Clearly. I've also seen times when He forgave me of certain things, whatever they were. And things got better. But I can also look back and see times when He didn't deliver me and when I did get into an accident or whatever... Well, maybe I still was delivered because some I should have died in, very clearly. So it's partial deliverance, but he let me roll over, whatever. Anyway, and that was to help get my, my attention. Oh, I think I better pray a little better. You know, I think I better turn to God more. So he allows those things. And he tells us that when, we ha when they do happen we ought to be joyful and glorify in them. Instead, poor pitiful me. Oh, look what's happened to me. I think I'll eat worms and die. No. Live in joy that you're half blind. Live in joy that you can't hear. Live in joy that you don't have a leg. Live in joy with whatever circumstance you have.
don't be feeling sorry for yourself. Be thankful God preserved you alive, whatever your troubles be, and that you still have opportunity to be part of the kingdom. You still have opportunity to serve and give and help others get there instead of feeling sorry for yourself. You know what? Every one of us has things they could feel sorry about. I, would, I, I could feel really sorry that my memory is not as good as it used to be. I could feel real sorry that my IQ is not 40 points better than it is. I could be real sorry that I got bugs on my headlights. You know, pick a number. It doesn't take much for a human being to get down and feel bad about himself. God knows there's enough wrong with us that that's easy to do. But he says we're supposed to rise above it. We're not to let it get us down. We're not to let it discourage us. Oh, I'm old. I can't do anything. Yes, you can. You can pray for others. You might not be able to get out of a chair, but you can pray for others, can't you? There's a lot of things you can do. As long as we're alive and human and have a brain with God's Spirit in it, we can hope in the glory of God and do everything we can to be positive about ourselves and each other and love our neighbor as ourselves. When you're sitting feeling sorry for yourself, you're not helping your neighbor or yourself. So these troubles and trials, tribulations, God lets happen to us because they develop patience and character and hope if we use them correctly. If we let them discourage us, then we're not being motivated by the Spirit of God, but by our own selfishness. Woe is me. Poor old me. No, there's no room for poor pitiful me. There's no room for that. Poor pitiful world. Pray thy kingdom come and solve, save this poor pitiful world. Poor pitiful me ain't what it's all about. It's about salvation for the world. What's the first thing Christ says to pray about after we acknowledge God's sovereignty? Thy kingdom come. For everybody. Not just so I can walk in the garden alone with you if all of you is still on the roses. It's not about you and me. It's about the whole world. And you and I have been called to help save the world as the bride of the living God and King of kings and Lord of lords. So let's absorb what Paul is saying here. Let's not just breeze by it. Let's get it and understand it. Why did God put all this trouble on the church? Trials, trouble, tribulation, blowing apart, destroying. So that we might learn to live in the hope of glory by turning to God instead of feeling sorry for ourselves in our church. He did that for a reason. Just like he's about to do it to this nation for a reason. 
Now, are we responding to what he did to us properly? And will this nation respond to him for what he does to it properly? We will, and they will. Okay? All Israel shall be saved. Romans 11.26 Not every individual, but most. The vast majority will ultimately be saved in most of the Gentile world as well because they'll become spiritual Israelites. His plan's going to work. So why do we sandbag it? Why do we slow it down? By living in the past and letting it affect us today. No. What happened to you years ago needs to be fixed so that your relationships now can be right with God and man. So all these things happen to us for reasons, to help build character in us and to instill that hope of, the sal- of salvation. Hopes make, hope makes not ashamed. Hope in God and a positive attitude toward the, peop- toward the future doesn't create any shame. Dwelling on our past sins or somebody else's past sins creates guilt and shame. Right? Am I ashamed of a lot of what I've done in the last 74 years and thought about? Yeah. Do I feel guilty? Yeah, if I let myself. But God says don't. He says forget it. It's under the blood of Christ. Move on. Move on. Hope makes not ashamed. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Spirit which is given to us. The Spirit of God is to change the way we think, to change the way we were, to convert us, to transform us into something different than what we have been. But we resist, don't we? This is what I was, this is what I still am. I wonder if I'll always be this way. Oh my, oh my, God fix me. Well, let's do what's necessary and, and uh, respond to Him so that it can be fixed. Don't be like you have been. Fix it. Be converted. We can't just keep wallowing in what we are. That's what pigs do in the mud. That's what dogs that return to their vomit do. That's what he's talking about. You turning back and feeling guilty for the past is like a dog licking up his own vomit. That's God's analogy. Or a pig wallowing in her manure. Yeah, you got manure in your past. You want to go back and wallow in it? What good does that do you? Well, if you're a pig, I guess you like the smell, but... We're not unclean pigs anymore. We are clean. We're not unclean through the blood of Christ and His forgiveness. We need to look at each other as clean animals. See, as a human being, you're not clean to eat. Cannibalism is out. Forget it. We're only clean through the Spirit of God. Verse 6, For when we were yet without strength, 
In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ didn't die for you once you were converted. He died for you when you were utterly ungodly. That's when He died for the whole world. When the whole world was ungodly. And His fate was established long before the creation that we enjoy today. Before the foundations of the world, it was decided that He would die for us. So there had been no godly people, period, when it was decided He would be sacrificed. So you can truly say He died for the ungodly, not for any godly person. So you and I were ungodly when we were called. Now we have hopefully become at least partially godly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Just looking at human beings, we don't want to die. And we certainly don't want to die in place of somebody else. You know? Well, he murdered a few people, but I'd like to take his place. Give me the injection instead of him. Any volunteers? Not very many. Scarcely or barely for someone who really is righteous would someone choose to die. Now my wife told me more than once in our lives that she would be willing to die for me. You know, that meant a lot to me that she loved me enough that she would say that. And when she was lying in there in that bed dying, I would have given anything to change places with her. I'd have given anything. I loved her that much. But I'm not going to do that for most people. I felt that for her. I wanted so much to raise her up even if I had to die. Because it hurt to see her suffering. And it hurts to this day that she's not here and that I can't enjoy her and love her. So he's saying, that's pretty rare in human experience. And we may have all experienced that with a maid or with a child. You know, you got a child that's dying. What would you do to save that child's life? Sometimes people do. They'll jump in and fight a shark to try to save somebody else or somebody that's drowning. They'll jump in front of a bus to save somebody else. Even a stranger. Because there is that something within us that wants to help and preserve under those circumstances. I think God built that in us. And yet at the same time, when somebody's getting beat to death out in front of the subway in New York, people walk by and just going about their business, and well, hope that turns out all right for you, and pay no attention. So there's the cold, heartless side of human nature, and then there's that part that wants to protect and help and nurture. But it's not too often that we're willing to say, okay, I'll die for you. But that's what Christ did. And it didn't make any difference how bad a sinners they were. 
I mean the worst, foulest human beings who have ever worked, walked this planet, he died for. Knowing that he could bring them to repentance and save them later. You think some of those scoundrels from history can save themselves? Maybe you and I weren't total scoundrels but as human beings, but we can't save ourselves. He has to work his salvation in us. You can barely get your teeth brushed, much less save your life. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how much he loved us. Now, he's speaking here to the church, the congregation at Rome in particular, in this particular letter. So he died for the church first, and for the rest of mankind second, because we have opportunity at salvation first, and at a higher position in the kingdom of God first. So it was first for you and me that he died. Whatever we were, he called us out of it didn't he? And therefore, he doesn't expect us to remain in it. He expects us to graduate from it, to move on. I've spent nearly a whole sermon here discussing that, but I think it's one of the deepest, hardest lessons for us to learn, is simply to believe God when he says, I forgive you, and accept it, and then move forward in grace and the hope of the glory. Positive, not negative, but positive about it. Believing that He can save us while comprehending we cannot save ourselves. And we do trust in the arm of self and the arm of flesh way too much instead of putting it on Him. Where is it? Colossians, Ephesians, somewhere it says, casting all your care on Him for He cares for you. I think that's Philip's translation, but it's, he encapsulates it very nicely. <clears throat> he died for us. Much more then, being now justified or approved by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. Can't deliver ourselves, can't fix ourselves, but He can fix us by His power, by His Spirit. We can have religion, but if we deny the power thereof, how are we going to do anything? i got some electric appliances over here in the kitchen. You know what? Unless I stick them in the outlet, I can turn them off and on all day long and nothing happens. So I can have the appliance and I can think, boy, it ought to cook or it ought to grind or it ought to do this or cool, whatever. But it won't, unless it's plugged into the power. You know, I believe in the power company. When it thunders and lightnings and strikes a pole, then I figure, power company better get this fixed, because I can't cook breakfast. So I believe in the power company. Now, God is the eternal power company. Why don't I believe in Him? That He can save this wretched human being from himself and Satan. When he says we 
have a name that we're Christians, but we deny the power thereof. That's what it means. We don't believe in the power of Christ to save us. Denying the power thereof. We've got to believe that if He died for us and shed His blood and all the pain He went through, and that His Father then was able to bring Him back from the dead, we've got to believe in the power company. The eternal power of God to resurrect, to give life. To bring back from rotting dust to dust to an eternal spirit being. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So we were still enemies of God when He died for us as sinners. And now, through His resurrection, were reconciled and shall be saved by His life. He's there at the right hand of God as our mediator, as the one who says, Father, I know, I, I see. Yeah, Satan, I, I hear you. But I died, and I'm alive now for that person. So beat it, Satan. Find something else to accuse. That one's in my good graces because they're growing and they're overcoming and I'm not imputing this sin that you're accusing them of. We'll be saved by His life. The fact that He is a living being today with warmth and heat and a breath and a face and arms and legs. He's not a ghost. He's a living being. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Emmanuel, by whom we have now received the atonement. What is atonement? At one meant agreeableness, seeing eye to eye, peace, as he said in verse 1. Through his death and resurrection, we can achieve peace or atonement. To be made one. Now, as human beings here today, we are not completely at one with Christ, are we? We still think things that are ungodly. We still have thoughts that are not of Christ-like. We still do things that are not godly and Christ-like. Now, we will not be at one with Him until the Day of Atonement is fully accomplished on the sea of glass when we're married to Him. <clears throat> then that marriage will be consummated and we will be at one totally, utterly, and completely with Christ Himself. But He's saying it's through Him that we receive the atonement. We are beginning to think more like Him. We're beginning to act more like Him. We're beginning to be more at one with Him. When two people meet, man and woman, they don't know each other. They start getting acquainted a little bit at a time, getting to know what the other person feels, what they like, what they want to eat, where they like to go, what they want to do, how they think toward others. You begin 
Not knowing each other at all. And slowly you get to know each other. You become more at one because you realize, oh, we think alike here. We think alike here. We can converse about this and communicate because we feel the same way. Now, if you meet somebody, let's say you're wanting to eventually get married. You meet somebody and you don't agree on nothing. You're not going to pursue that one. Because you're not becoming at one. You're totally at odds. These dating services, I've read a little bit here and there about how people will meet on the internet and they'll decide to get together. They have dinner. And they're virtually fighting before dinner's over. Because they just don't agree on anything. Or very little. So they don't date again. But now if they do enjoy each other, well, maybe we'll do this again. And maybe we'll get to know each other a little more. And over a period of time, they become more and more at one until they decide, hey, let's get married. We're pretty much alike. We should be able to get along and live in peace and happiness and joy eternally, we say. <laughs> eh, not quite. Happily ever after. Well, somewhat. Because you're still, even though you've decided you're close enough and at one enough to get married, you're still not completely at one. Some more than others, but none completely. And we aren't with God until that marriage in the heavens. Then we become totally at one. Well, meantime, this is the dating period. This is the long, hot summer before marriage is typified in the fall by atonement, in which we come to be more like Him. See, He doesn't need to change. He's our knight in shining armor. And there's no blight. There's no rust. There's nothing wrong whatsoever with Him. So we have to conform to Him and become like Him, and become more at one in the way we think and act with Him day by day. Coming to think like He thinks. Because His is the best thinking. Ours is stinking thinking. And it has to be fixed. So, what do we do? We read this book. Because it cleanses our, teaching, our, our thinking. You can be thinking all kinds of stuff, and you start reading this, and that'll help you think more like God does. That's why you study the Bible. It isn't just so you can appear righteous and brag to somebody, well, I, I read the Bible for an hour this morning. Aren't I sweet? Aren't I good? Aren't I righteous? Baloney. You shouldn't even be telling people you prayed this morning. What did he say? Go in the closet and pray... And don't do it out in the street or brag about it if you did do it in the closet. Because that's just self-righteousness. Let it be seen that you prayed and it did some good and you think more like God as a result of it by the way you think and act toward others. That's how you show the fruit of the Spirit. How did the Pharisees show what they call the fruit of the Spirit. By bragging about their prayer, 
and their study of the Old Testament and their heritage through Abraham and Moses and the broad white cuffs they put on their arms so that they could write their good deeds down that everybody could read and see. How wonderful they were. That's all baloney. Don't tell people you prayed. Don't tell people you studied. Show it by your fruits. That's all that matters. And besides, you don't get as self-righteous by bragging. That's what it is. Self-righteousness. We need to become at one with Him, end of verse 11, in our thoughts and in our deeds, so that He will want to marry us. You know, He has to want to marry you. It's a gift of God. I will confer brideship on you because I can't help but love you. You just think so much like I do that I want to be with you for eternity. Now, we as humans say, I'll love you eternally, but we can't get that job done. It's only Him that we can live happily ever after through eternity. But He doesn't want to live with anybody for all ages unless they're agreed. And that's part of what we are here to learn in marriage, is because we won't always agree. And we will have trials and troubles and tribulations in our relationship with each other. And we're to learn from that that we need to alter our thinking and our actions so that we can live in peace and harmony. That's what this experience is, so that we can live in in peace and harmony with God forevermore. Now, if you're in a poor marriage, or a halfway decent marriage, or even a pretty good marriage, there's still issues that you're not comfortable with. There's still things about each other that you don't particularly care for. Now, before you get married, you care for everything. They are fine. There's nothing wrong with them whatsoever. Fast forward a year, two or three or ten. And, you know, somebody's got pink toothbrush or stores too much or something. And there are things that you don't care about, about their personalities even. Would you want to live like that forever? With our human frailties and our faults and weaknesses? I wouldn't. Fifty, sixty years is quite enough with another human being, even if it's pretty decent. God has got us slated to live forever and evermore with Him and never have a ripple, a wrinkle, a tear, a care, a worry. Nothing wrong. Now, you can't do that. You have to have help. He has to work His salvation in you and through you. And you have to call on Him to give you the belief and believe in His power to change you. Human beings change very slowly. Have you ever noticed that in yourself and others? 
It is like pulling teeth to get somebody to change an attitude, the way they act, the way they live, the way they do something that may not be quite right or efficient or whatever. Human beings change very slowly. But God calls on us to change, to be converted and transformed. Now that means that you don't get comfortable with the way you are. We got comfortable with the way we were in Worldwide Church of God, thinking we had our plane ticket punched, we'd go to Petra. They ain't going on a plane, and we ain't going to Petra. And we know that now. But to a place of safety, however you may have thought of it. We thought, since we were there, and everything would be all right. And we got comfortable with what we were. And what we were was a long way short of total godliness. So he shook us up. Now, have we lapsed back into being comfortable with the way we are? I know we're uncomfortable with the way others are. But have we gotten comfortable with the way we are? If we are, then maybe we need shaken up some more. What can I say? That's what trials, troubles, and tribulations are about. I don't like to pray for trouble or for chastening. It's just against my nature. I don't like to be whacked on. But on the other hand, I don't want to be complacent and think that I can get by like I am. Wherefore, as by one man, verse 12, sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. We aren't at one with God. Ever since Adam and Eve, we have not been at one with God. They were pretty much at one with Him in the garden. He'd given them everything they could possibly want. And each other, who were at that point, without blemish. Each one created not only body, but personality, emotions, everything was created beautifully. Very good. No blemishes. Nothing that Adam and Eve could look at each other and say, ah, you know, you do have a mole. Nothing. Not so much as a pimple on their behind. Perfectly created. Emotionally, mentally, in every way. The temperature was perfect. The food was perfect. The housing was perfect. Nothing wrong. No bugs. Nothing was wrong. They were at one with God. And He would come and speak with them. And they got along perfectly. And then Satan came along and said, hey, wait a minute. And then they weren't at one with God anymore. And then things went bad. And things got worse. And you know the story. And mankind has not been at one with God ever since. Because through Adam and Eve came sin. And every one of us has indulged in it ever since. And we are a long way from being at one with God. But He's given you and me a chance to begin to rectify that, to heal that breach between us and God. What a glorious opportunity! 
Why do we get bogged down in ourselves? Why can't we live the hope of the glory of God and admit and call on His power to be transformed, to be changed, to become more at one with Him? Think about that one. That's a good place to stop. It was more than six verses, barely. Barely.